this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our service at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. And we'll open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 8. And if you are new uh, with us today, we are walking through Mark's gospel together. And we are in the 8th chapter. And we're going to look this morning at uh, verses... Really, verses 1 through 13 is going to be our focus uh, today. If you want to read uh, through 14 through 21 on your own, uh, please do that. But we're going to focus today really on, on verses 1 through 13. It's about desperation and provision. We face desperate times sometimes in our lives, and we get to see God coming through and providing in incredible ways. So we're going to talk about that today, desperation and provision, and let's look at Mark 8, and we are going to look at the first 13 verses of that chapter. So the Bible says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes... They will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to those to, to these all, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take your word now and apply it to our understanding. We pray that you would open our minds and hearts right now, that we would be totally locked in and open to what you would seek to do in our lives through your word, by the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Dr. Joseph Stoll was the president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago for many years And he tells about when he and his wife moved out of the city to the western suburbs of Chicago to be near their grandkids. And they built their dream home there. It it wasn't over the top or extravagant, but it it was really nice. And they they loved the house. I mean, they loved the way it felt inside. They loved the way it looked on the outside. They loved their yard. It was just a great place. The grandkids come over and, and play. They couldn't have been happier with it. But Dr. Stoll said, you know, I hate to admit this, but about six months after we had been in our dream home, 
I was driving through a beautiful neighborhood and I looked over and this particular house caught my eye and something about the color and the architecture and, and it was in just a beautiful garden-like setting. And he said, I found myself thinking, I wish we had that house. And he said, and then it hit me, that my, my thinking was coming from another garden, the Garden of Eden, because what happened, what, what was at the heart of the first sin? That what God has given is not enough. And it's just a very short step from that to God is not enough. That's at the heart of every sin. At the heart of every sin is the thinking that what God has given is not enough, so I'm going to step outside of His will and do my own thing. At the heart of every sin. At the heart of being released from slavery to sin is understanding that God is enough. In fact, He's more than enough. And that's the message of our text today. So what do we see here in this text? I want us to see three things. First of all, there's a desperate situation that is going on here. And we see in verse 1 that a great crowd had gathered. And in verse 9, we see that it was a crowd of 4,000 people. And the Greek here is very specific that it was 4,000 people. Not just 4,000 men, but men, women, and children together made 4,000. Now this tells us this is a different miracle than the one that takes place in chapter 6. In chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the multitude and multiplies the five loaves and two fish, there were 5,000 men, probably 15 to 20,000 people in that situation. But this is, a, this is a different crowd, and it takes place in a, in a different environment. In chapter 6, that miracle took place in Tadga, which was on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, very near Capernaum. It was the main center of operations for Jesus' ministry in a heavily Jewish area. This miracle takes place in the Decapolis, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, in a heavily Gentile area. And so the message here of these two feedings is this. Jesus is the bread of life who has come for us, and He's come for everybody. And He's more than enough for everybody. He is more than enough for Jews. He is more than enough for Gentiles. And He's more than enough for you. Philippians 4 and verse 19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His glorious riches. In Christ Jesus. Now, like much of what Jesus did in his ministry, this has a rich Old Testament background. Jesus here is, is fulfilling what's, what's happening in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, what happens when the people of Israel are wandering in another desolate place in the wilderness? What did God do? He provided manna for them. Manna from heaven, they would wake up in the morning and there would be this manna that would be waiting for them. And of course that manna was only meant to foreshadow and to point to the ultimate manna that was going to come down from heaven. And that was Jesus. And so we see in John chapter 6, Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now let's take a closer look at this desperate setting of this miracle. Verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So this too is different than the first feeding in chapter 6. In that situation, the crowd had been with Jesus all day. He didn't want to dismiss them uh, and have them go home, home uh, hungry. But, it, but in this case, the crowd has been with him for three days. And when it says that they had been with him for three days, it means more than just that they had been physically with him. The word with here is, is a rare and, and intensified form of the word remain. And what's being communicated is that this crowd, they, they've not only been with Jesus physically for three days, but they have been with him in the sense that they've had a special adherence to Jesus. A special adherence to him, a commitment to him, and to what he's been saying. They have been, they have been drinking in every word that Jesus said for three days. Feasting on every word that he said for three days. Such was their, their spiritual appetite. Now look, frequently we, we need to ask ourselves diagnostic questions about how we're doing spiritually, about how healthy we are spiritually. One of those questions, a good question to ask to diagnose how you're doing spiritually is this one. What is my appetite for the Word of God? What is my appetite for the Word of God? Do you hunger and thirst for God's Word? Do, do, you, do you hunger and thirst to, 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 to dig into your Bible you know, on a daily basis? Do you hunger and thirst for the expositional preaching of the Word? Do you hunger and thirst for, for hearing the Word taught in your Sunday school class. That's an indication of spiritual health. And listen, if your hunger for the Word is not what you think it should be, a couple of things. First of all, pray about it. But then discipline yourself to begin tasting it more. Because I want to tell you something. When you begin to taste the Word of God, you want more of it. The more you taste the heavenly manna, the more of it that you want, that you crave. Now, this crowd can't get enough of it. <laughs> In fact, they've been so preoccupied with being fed spiritually that they haven't had a lot to eat physically. And so Jesus is sensitive enough to know. He's always sensitive, always thinking about the needs of others. And Jesus knows that if he dismisses this crowd without them eating in this desolate place, he knows that, that many of them are going to collapse on the way home. And so it's, it's really a rather desperate situation. And it says here in verse 2, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. And the word compassion here in Greek is splangnizomai, 
It's a form of the word spalangnon, which refers to the inner organs, our guts. And, and, and what it's saying here is that Jesus had a gut-level compassion for this crowd. Now, if he has that kind of compassion for this crowd, what makes you think he doesn't have that kind of compassion for you? I want you to know he does have that kind of compassion for you. When you are in need, Jesus understands your need like no one else does. Jesus has a level of compassion for you that no one else has. And Jesus can provide for you like no one else can. And that's what we're going to see next. We're going to see his provision, divine provision. Verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, when we first read this, if, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you know, they just had a miraculous feeding in chapter 6. When you first read verse 4 here, you know, we're tempted to kind of get on our, get high and mighty, get on our high horse and, and say, Well, duh. I mean, you guys were there. You were a part of that miracle. He said 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Don't you get it? But we need to cut these guys way more slack than that for several reasons. First of all, Jesus did do lots of miracles, but, but he, he never did them mechanically. And so they're, they're, not, just, they're not just assuming that, that Jesus here is going to do a miracle. Jesus did miracles as he sensed the Spirit uh, working here. But they're not necessarily just assuming that, that's going, that he's going to do that. That's, that's part of it. Another part of it is that when you think about the miracles of Jesus, you need to understand this. Nothing like that had ever happened before. There had never been in the history of the world you know, that kind of intrusion of the, the supernatural into the natural world. And so these guys are having to do the same thing that we would be having to do in that situation. That is they're having to retrain their minds to think differently. And, that, and here, that's another thing. Is that even when we have seen God come through like they had seen him come through. Even when we've seen the faithfulness of God coming through for us, and seen miracles even, if we are so prone, just like they were, we are so prone to just sort of default to unbelief and self-reliance. You know, we see God come through for us. He's so faithful. He comes through time and time again. Uh, but then the next time we face a, a, a challenge or a situation, we find ourselves freaking out and thinking, oh, I've got to handle this on my own. And we forget you know, how faithful our God has been. Now, one of the ways that can help us with this is if we'll incorporate a healthy dose of thanksgiving into our prayers. That's why I love that the, the acts sort of acrostic in, in, in prayer A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Because it, what it does is that structure kind of forces us to incorporate lots of thanksgiving into our prayers. And see, when you get into the habit of, 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 of thanking God and regularly calling to your mind 
the way that God has come through for you and been so faithful, then the next time that you face a challenge, you're more apt to, to, you've got that in your mind. You know what? God's been so faithful. What makes me think he's not going to be faithful now? You know, God's got this. There's no reason to freak out. So thanksgiving helps us with that. So incorporate lots of thanksgiving into your, your prayer lives. You'll find it helpful in that way. Verses 5 and 6. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Now, just like in the miracle that takes place in chapter 6, Jesus has the disciples to distribute the loaves and the fish. He didn't have to do that. Yeah, Jesus could have just spoken the word and boom, it's, you know, it's, it's multiplied. And he didn't have to involve them at all. But listen, Jesus chooses to involve us in his work. That's an exciting thing to contemplate. He, he normally works through his people. And that means we have to retrain our minds to understand that God seeks to work through us on a daily basis. You know, as a child, uh, I, would, I would watch sometimes the N- NBA games on TV. We didn't get a lot of N- NBA games on TV pre- pre-cable days. Um, but they would come on sometimes on Saturday afternoon. And uh, they, at, at halftime of these games, they would always have one, they'd get like a star player and they'd have a little uh, clip of him doing a demonstration or whatever. And, and the, the one that impacted me the most was Pete Maravich, Pistol Pete Maravich. He, he was an amazing handler of the basketball. I mean, he could just, the, the way he used his hands and dribbling, he's just like a, a maestro. I can still see those clips like it was yesterday. I, I had no idea as a child that, that I, I would end up in college, actually uh, go, going to college with Pete Maravich's sister, uh, Diana. Um, in fact, uh, I got to know her because we worked in the same uh, deli together along with Lisa Amos, member of our church. So if you want to know about life and times at the Main Street Deli, Ask Lisa about that. But anyway, uh, Lisa and Diana made a lot of the food, and I ate a lot of the food at, at, at the deli. You know, so it's, it was a good deal. Um, but anyway, uh, Diana said that her brother, growing up, had a basketball with him all the time. I mean, he was just everywhere he went, he would take a basketball. I mean, I'm talking about in non-basketball activities, walking down the street, going to the store, going to a friend's house. He dribbled a basketball everywhere he went, left hand, right hand, to the point that the ball became like a part of his body. <laughs> it became like a natural extension of his body. You know, I think that's the goal, is, is that we should think of ourselves as extensions, like a natural extension of the ministry of Jesus as we go through our daily lives. Okay, and that transforms life. It makes life a lot more exciting. When you wake up and you think, okay, I'm an instrument of God today. And, and, and the people that I come across, the conversations that I have with people, God's putting them in my path for me to be an agent, a natural extension of His love. 
that transforms the way that we treat people. It transforms the way that we talk to people. transforms what we say. You know, just to think of yourself as an extension of the, of the ministry of Jesus. He chooses to involve us in his, in his work as he does here. It's exciting. Now, the third thing that we see here is human hardness. And we see that beginning in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And when it says here in verse 11 that these religious leaders came out, it means more than just that they sort of physically came out. They, they came out ready to fight. They are spoiling for a fight. They came out to discredit Jesus. And it says that they were seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, at first, when you read that, you're thinking, now, if they're thinking that they're going to try to discredit Jesus by showing his inability to do miracles, probably not a wise strategy. But it's a little different than that. Because the word sign here is not the normal Greek word that was used for miracles. Um, they have seen Jesus do, they, they know Jesus can do miracles. Okay, they're, they're not stupid. They, they know that Jesus has done tons of miracles by this point. This word is a little bit different. When it says that they're seeking a sign, it means that, that, that they are seeking some authentication from God of, of, who, he, of who he is. In other words, it's almost like they, almost like they want to see writing in the sky. Of, of who Jesus really is. And Jesus responds by saying to them in verse 12, Jesus says, it says he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And when, it says, when Jesus says here, no sign will be given, it's about as strong, a, the, a strong a way as he could say that phrase as was possible. It's almost like Jesus was saying, I will die before a sign is given to this generation. In other words, it's just, it's not going to happen. Now we're going to talk about why in, in just a moment. We're going to circle back around to it. But notice here at the beginning of verse 12 that it says he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now the, the word here that's translated as sigh deeply, it does not mean anger. It does not even mean a sense of indignation. It is a sense of despair. It is a sense of just utter sadness. Because Jesus sees that these guys have hardened their heart to the point that they are never going to humble themselves and repent. And he, he just, he just, it's just a, a sad, despairing groan that he has for them. And it says in, in verse 13, and he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. And when it says that Jesus left them, it means more just than just the fact that he physically left. It, it, it means that Jesus is moving on. Jesus is, is, is shaking the dust off his feet at this point. And, and 
He's, mo- he's moving on. He, he knows they, they've hardened themselves to the point they're not going to humble themselves. They are not going to repent. He's done. He's moving on. You know, C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. In other words, if you persist in hard-heartedness, God reaches a point where he says, thy will be done. Have it your way. And he lets you go your own way. God reaches a point where if you persist in hard-heartedness, if you persist in taking your own way, taking your own road in rebellion against him, God's going to let you take that road. And the only exit on that road is marked hell. And that is why I would beg you today, don't harden your heart. God has you here, right now, in this room, right now, to give you an opportunity to repent and to come to Him. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Come now. Turn now to Jesus. Now, let's go back and talk about why Jesus doesn't give them a sign. Well, I was like, hey, why don't you, Jesus, just throw him a bone. You know, you've done all these miracles. You know, we can know that you can do anything. Why doesn't Jesus just kind of give them what they want here? Give them this authenticating sign. Um, because he knows it's not going to make any difference. He, look at what he's already done. <laughs> look, look at what he, that he's already done. All the miracles he's already done. And they know that. And not only that, but the ultimate miracle is going to happen, which is that he's going to conquer death. The resurrection is the ultimate sign. And they're not going to believe. They're not going to believe. Jesus says, you won't believe if somebody rises from the dead. And they didn't. Because that's not really how faith comes. And Dr. James Edwards says this, Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled doubt. If a man hires a private eye to spy on his wife while he's away in order to prove her faithfulness, the detective's proofs will scarcely guarantee the husband's faith. Faith, like love itself, cannot be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. The Pharisees turn and walk away. The disciples follow Jesus into the boat. Now listen, every single human being is in one of those two categories. Every person in this room is in one of those two categories. You are either going to follow Jesus or you're going to turn and walk away. And don't assume that just because you're sitting in a church, don't assume that that means that you're following Jesus. It does not. Because you can be sitting in a church and your heart can be far from God. To follow Jesus, to get into the boat with Jesus, means more than just being physically present in church. It means more than just saying that you're a follower of Jesus. It is about 
active trust and commitment. It is about Jesus being king of your life. It's about you humbling yourself before God, taking your own hands off the controls of your life and turning it over to the Lord. Right? It's a commitment. You, know, you, can, you can make your, res- your plane reservation online. You can go to the airport. You can check your bags. You can walk down to the gate until you get on board, board the plane. You have not flown and you will not fly. It takes a faith commitment. You've got to get on board. You've got to get in the boat with Jesus definitively. And that means repent. That means to turn from trying to do life your own way and turning to Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm yours. I am yours without reserve. Don't harden your heart. This chance is yours. Turn to Jesus now. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. And Lord, we know there's a sense of urgency about following Christ. We get one short life to do this. None of us knows when Christ is going to return. None of us knows when our own lives are going to end. And you have given us the opportunity to know you now. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know Christ. I pray that you would work in their hearts and that they would humble themselves and repent and turn to Jesus and trust in Him alone. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you have gone to the cross and taken our sins upon yourself and risen from the dead so that we can have life, life abundant and life eternal. And you offer that as a free gift. But we have to receive it. We have to accept it by faith and so Lord I pray for anyone here today who's never done that I pray that they would turn to Jesus today take their hands off the controls and let you take over Father I pray for those of us who are in this room as believers we pray that all of our lives would be yielded to you that we, if, we were, if we are seeking to harden our heart and exclude you from any area of our lives that we would surrender that and say, you're the Lord, you're my king. Every area yielded to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to your heart about a relationship with him, we would love to talk with you more about that and pray with you. If you're here today and um, God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, we'd love to, to talk with you uh, about that and just uh, just welcome you. If there's a need in your life for prayer, we're here to pray for you. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your Son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, 
I turn to Jesus and trust in His finished work for me. In His name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as His beloved child, His very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are His child. You say, I love Him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd, I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey.